exciting day when you really understand it. I think that over the years, over the decades that I've kept the Day of Atonement, um, I didn't look forward to it in quite the same way perhaps I did Pentecost or the Feast of Trumpets, partly because I knew I wasn't going to get to eat and drink. And that is not something that you tend to just, by nature, look forward to. And I don't think I understood the symbolism of atonement in past years as well as we're beginning to understand it today either. Uh, to us, <clears throat> this is becoming more and more special, the better we understand it. Now, I'm going to go back and review the plan of God a little bit today as we start. Uh, it is rehearsed every year, beginning with the Passover, the Days of Unleavened Bread, at the beginning of the year, right after the turn of the year, each year. Can't do it before the turn of the year, has to be after. Has to be a new year to rehearse the whole new symbolism over again. Now, when we approach Passover, we have very firmly in mind some scriptures which indicate that we are not to approach that lightly, that we are to examine ourselves and not eat and drink condemnation to ourselves at the Passover. <clears throat> and in some respects, I think we've tended to look at Passover as an end-all, be-all, that that is the beginning of the plan of God and that Jesus Christ was sacrificed for us. And I don't mean to minimize that whatsoever. I think even this past year we've learned that we were minimizing it more than we should have been by not keeping it in the correct order and as it should have been done. But what he did to begin the process of salvation for you and me is an awesome thing. That he would plan years and years, millenniums, perhaps millions and billions of years as we would count time, I don't know, but at least from the foundation of the earth. A plan was devised that Jesus Christ would come and die for you and me. And he lived with that realization all that time, knowing that he would have to become human, that he would have to divest himself of all the supernatural powers, abilities, strengths, that he would have to give up a nature which tended only to go upward. I do not understand that. You don't either. We've never had a nature like that. We have a nature that desires self and selfishness, which can easily descend into self-pity and depression. We have a nature that looks down on others very easily, that puts them down in order that we might feel better about ourselves. We have a nature that will do, unbridled at least, almost anything to serve self. And that's all we've ever known. But Jesus Christ had a nature that only wanted to think good, only wanted to do what was right, never ever even desired to do anything wrong. And he was willing to give that up and take on manhood. To imbibe of human nature in which almost every pull is downward. 
Some of you might remember Herbert Armstrong describing that, that all the pulls of human nature are down. They are not up, they are down. And the only way that we overcome those is to jerk harder the other direction than our nature pulls downward. So he gave that up and took on the same nature we have and lived with that for 33 and one-half years, knowing that he could never give in to a downward pull even once. So we cannot minimize at all what he was willing to do. He was willing to live 33 and a half years sacrificing that closeness with his father that he had always had and to live on this divided earth to put up with being called a bastard from Nazareth, to put up with everything that everyone could say evil and foul against him, and then 33 and a half years later, die the most ignominious, horrible, painful death that any human being has ever experienced. But that was only a beginning. We have to understand that. It was an absolutely necessary beginning, but it was only a beginning of the plan of salvation. <clears throat> Immediately following the Passover, as we now understand, are seven days of unleavened bread, beginning with the Passover itself at sundown on the 14th and continuing for seven consecutive days. Now, he did never sin in his life, never gave in to the downward pulls, and he sacrificed himself that our sins could be wiped out, completely taken away, removed as far as the east is from the west. He opened that door. But in so doing, he did not overcome sin for us, did he? Not at all. Because immediately thereafter come seven days of us doing what? <clears throat> Overcoming, growing, putting sin out of our lives, because though he opened the door for sin to be forgiven, we were still sinning. And at Passover time, through the days of unleavened bread, I dare say we all sinned. <clears throat> and we have ever since this spring when we had the Passover service and we spent seven days putting sin out of our lives, but we didn't get the job finished, did we? And we still find that we have problems, difficulties, and the pull of human nature is still upon us. We still say things wrong, do things wrong, think things wrong. Probably every day that we exist on this planet. Now God understood <clears throat> that in opening the door to salvation, and making an expiation for sins possible, that did not finish the job. The soul that sins, it shall die. And the breaking of God's law is sin. And no one has sinned, or not sinned, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Therefore, that sacrifice has to be there, otherwise we will die for whatever sin, whenever. And it has to be a continual daily sacrifice as well. Or it has to be applied. He doesn't die every day. We have to die every day. Paul said, I die daily. In other words, I have to kill, crucify the flesh every day. So it's not just at the days of unleavened bread. That is only a symbolism. 
a symbolism of what we must do every day. Now, <clears throat> the fact that we did not accomplish that during the days of unleavened bread creates another problem or another hurdle in the road to salvation, doesn't it? And we need help. That is why Pentecost comes along. Pentecost, first and foremost, pictures the coming of God's Holy Spirit. <clears throat> they couldn't go on to salvation from Passover. He told them, carry here 50 days. You just wait right here. You're not, you can't go any further without help. Just stay right there and wait patiently. And then when Pentecost came, they were assembled together, and the cloven tongues of fire came down, and a great noise, and God's Holy Spirit came to dwell in them for the first time. The first time it had been offered, generally, for salvation. A few of the patriarchs had God's Spirit with them. They were never begotten of it, so far as we know. And once you're begotten, just like a babe in a mother's womb, you must then begin to grow. And if you don't grow, you become a miscarriage. You die. You're never born. That is why it is so important to understand that we are not born again when we are baptized. We are only begotten. We will be born into the kingdom of God <clears throat> as God. But we're only begotten. So there's always the chance before you were born that you would become a miscarriage, right? For nine months there, well, you, you can be born earlier, and some are, and live. But I'm speaking in general. The term is about nine months for a natural, proper birth. So once we are begotten with that Holy Spirit, we then have help to grow. Until the Spirit of God combines with the Spirit in man, the mind that God gave us, we cannot begin to truly grow toward salvation. Just as a babe, and God made these analogies perfectly, so that we would live through it and understand it. Until the seed of the mom is combined with the seed of the dad, nothing will grow. Once those are combined, growth begins. And it is an inexorable growth. It will either do one of either, I'll get it spit out, I guess, one of either two things will happen. It will grow until it is born as a live human being, or it will die once that life has begun. And we understand that in human terms very well because we've seen live births and how happy and joyous they can be, and we've seen miscarriages and abortions and how miserable and frustrating they can be, and how especially the women, seem never to quite completely recover from it. Losing a child that has been growing in your body is such an emotional thing that when that child doesn't make it, it leaves deep emotional scars that can be mitigated in time, but which a woman, it seems, never can completely overcome. Now that should give us a small clue as to how much God loves you and me. How he was willing to give his son that we not die, but that we become live births into his kingdom. 
That is how much he loved us, as John 3.16 says. He so loved the world that he gave up the one and only that he had. And that is very strong proof to me that Christ is not a created being, that he has always been, I mean aside from the fact that the scripture says that, but he has always been just like the Father. Otherwise, why couldn't he create himself a few billion gods on Tuesday and a few more on Thursday? If he can create them as God from scratch. No, we have to go through this. He saw a created being rebel and take one-third of the angels with him. He doesn't want that to happen anymore. Now to us it seems very difficult to go through human life day after day, week after week, year after year, fighting our human nature, having difficulties being what we know we ought to be. It seems so hard. But the deep underlying lesson we have to be learning day by day is never, ever rebel against God. To yield completely and totally to him. That's what we're here to learn. So that we would never, ever question his authority, never, ever question his rules, never, ever talk back or argue with him, but that we would always do what he says because we know he knows best. That is why it is so important we teach our children from childhood not to rebel against their parents, not to talk back, not to go the way that most children go in life. Now God knows the best way to live. And we know a better way to live than our two or three or four or five-year-old child, don't we? Now that child has not yet learned that he should not rebel and talk back and whine and cry and beller and scream and throw the shoulder and roll the eyes and all the things they do to show that they have disagreement with dad and mom. No, they haven't learned that. They do not by nature know that dad and mom know more than they do. Now when they're little bitty children, they do have an innocence and they have a trust that they later lose. I remember when my children thought, I must be God. I just must be. I was that much bigger than they were. Maybe I wasn't very big by other people's standards, but by their standard I was. And they absolutely trusted me. I could tell my child, jump off the bed, I'll catch you. Absolutely believe me. Whoa, there he came. And then there came a time as they grew a little older where they didn't quite trust me as much. And then there came a time when they thought they knew more than I do. And maybe there'll come a time when they do. But we won't talk about that. If I keep growing, maybe they won't. But we have to come to have absolute, total trust that God's way is right. That he is stronger, that he is more intelligent, 
but he knows what he is doing. Somewhere along the line, the one who became Satan said, I, I think I'm just pretty as you are. I think I'm just as good as you are. Matter of fact, I think I'm just a little better than you are. And he convinced a third of the angels that he was. And they led a rebellion and were cast out. We are going through what we are going through. And we are fasting today in part as a part of that salvation's plan wherein we learn that God knows best, or as the old TV program from years ago was, Father Knows Best. And he does. But he does never, ever want one of us to ever rebel against him again. And that's what we're here to learn. Bottom line, that's it. Never, ever rebel against God. That's why he tells us, not only follow my rules, but bring every thought into captivity. We are not to ever rebel against God's ways, even in thought. That's how it, began, how it started with Satan, isn't it? He rebelled in thought. A thought hit his mind that was selfish and vain. And from there, it broadened into that attitude. Your children, if you're rearing them properly are not going to rebel against you at first. I mean, they're, they're not going to have a rebellious nature toward you. <clears throat> They'll be compliant for the most part. But at some point in their little brain, in their emotions, selfishness enters. And from there, thoughts begin to occur. You know, the eye roll is a long way off when the, when the thought first hits. The shrugging of the shoulder, slamming the door is a long way off when those thoughts first begin in their minds. They can be spoiled from a very young age, and the eye roll comes later. Now God took us when we had already mastered the eye roll. He took us when we had already mastered the shrug of the shoulder and the slamming of the door. He came to us when we were sinners out in the world. And he said, now we've got to get over this attitude. Now we will quit being like the world, and now we will begin to be like God. Now if you think about it, that's not so bad, is it? We could be like God? I think that's... Pretty nice goal to have. But the transition is a long, hard one to go from what we were in the world to being like Jesus Christ and the Father. He knew we needed help. Therefore, he sent his Spirit to give us help. And he did some other things on that day at Pentecost. He also began the Church of the First Fruits. He gave us help via his spirit, the begettal of the spirit is pictured by Pentecost, so that we might begin to grow to becoming God, or like God. Now, first of all, you have to get rid of sin, or make sin possible to go away. Then you have to have help to overcome and grow and get beyond sin. That's what his Holy Spirit is for. 
But even then, you cannot do it alone. So he began the church of the firstborn. And he describes the church as a body. A body that has to grow together and learn coordination. Now, after a child is born, what does he have to learn? Motor skills, coordination, control of the hands and the body and the feet and the mouth and the bowels and everything. We are born helpless. So there come years of growth, of becoming ultimately an adult. Once we're begotten of God, we have to go through a period of time in which we grow so that we can function as God when we are finally born. The human sphere is a little different in that sense. Once we're born into the kingdom of God, we need to be able to go to work immediately. So the spiritual growth needs to occur now so that we are prepared as kings and priests. So while we are being, we're in the process of growing as a begettle, at the same time we should be developing the motor skills and coordination spiritually to be able to function as God. Now, with the body to grow together, to learn to love, to learn to interact together as a team, this is very important. No man is an island, and God has commanded that we forsake not the assembling of ourselves together, but to come together so that we might learn to operate as a family, as a team, together. And he said, it should become so close, so close a family, so that if one member of the family hurts, they all hurt. If one is rewarded or feels good or blessed, they should all rejoice. So whether we rejoice or whether we mourn, we do it together. When one of us hurts, we all hurt. When one of us is blessed, we all are happy. There's no room for jealousy. There's no room for selfishness. There's room for growth together. And we need to break down those barriers between ourselves that cause us not to interact together. Now what happens Let's say in the example of diabetes, for instance. You have blood vessels throughout your body, and they connect the whole body together. As that blood flows from limb to limb and back to the heart and back out through the body, the life is in the blood. When you kill an animal, you're commanded not to eat the blood because God says the life is in the blood. So as that blood is pumped through you to all the members, all the members thrive, don't they? But what if that blood supply starts getting cut off and all those members do not operate together properly? And with a diabetic, often it's the toes and the feet and the legs where the blood circulation is cut off. And those members of the body begin to die. And if the disease follows its course, they start cutting the parts of your body off in increments, starting with a toe or two, then to a foot, then to a knee, even up to a leg. And you die because enough parts of the body have been harmed that the body can no longer live. 
we must be sure that life flows through each of us to every other member of the body. We can't cut some off. Now you might like hands better than feet, or you might like eyes better than elbows. So those whom you like, you make sure your friendship, your love, your feelings flow. Those parts of the body that seem less desirable to you, you perhaps leave out more often than not. We must be very careful that the whole body is supplied with life. Life that flows as a result of God's Spirit, which is love, one to the other, and not let any be impeded lest they die, lest they be cut off from the body. Very important concept for us to get. That's why he says, if one part of the body hurts, they all hurt. And they do what they can to make sure that all parts of the body function well together. All right, moving on from Pentecost, we have next the Feast of Trumpets. Now there's one we all have looked forward to, I think, probably as much as any other holy day of the year. You really look forward. Now I look forward to Passover, don't get me wrong. But at Passover time, I also have to consider that I have sinned. I have to consider that I am far from perfect. I have to be sure that I examine myself, that I not be uh, taking it in a wrong manner, in a wrong attitude, spirit of rebellion or whatever, and eat and drink condemnation to myself. So even though I look forward to the Passover and want it to happen and I want to feel renewed in that sense, I still look upon it with a certain amount of trepidation. But when it comes to Feast of Trumpets, other than having to prepare a sermon, I look to, forward to it with unmitigated joy. Because to me, Feast of Trumpets pictures that time when I might have grown and overcome enough through the Spirit of God and the help of His people that I might rise in the air to meet Christ. And that is basically the meaning of the Feast of Trumpets, when that trumpet sounds, the last trump. It is going to sound death and devastation to a lot of people who have not yielded to God, but for those who do yield to God, it's nothing but unmitigated joy as you rise and you shed this human nature and in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, are changed and suddenly have a spirit body, not this physical thing that you drag around, and a spirit mind instead of this human mind that drags you down. So there is nothing there but joy. Now the Day of Atonement marks a very, very important point in the plan of salvation. For you and for me, for those 144,000 of Revelation 14.4 who are the first fruits, who are the bride of Christ, for that 144,000, it is the end of the plan of salvation. It pictures the time when it is absolutely finished, when it is done, when there is no more struggling, and it comes, you notice, right after the Feast of Trumpets. Feast of Trumpets, the change comes. 
But once that occurs, and we reach the Day of Atonement, we're reaching a point where our salvation is complete. Feast of Tabernacles in the last great day have nothing to do with your salvation and mine. Nothing whatsoever. Now whether we make it through the Day of Atonement and go on to the Feast of Tabernacles in the last great day does have some importance and certainly there's some bearing on our salvation in terms of attitude. We'll get to that a little later. But this day pictures the job of salvation being finished for you and for me. The day that he has finished the job. Passover is only the beginning of the project. The day of atonement for us is the end of the project. It's the finish, the completion. We're to do, have you noticed, no work of any kind on this day. On the other holy days, feast days, you can cook, make food, but on the day of atonement you can't even do that. Why? Well, you're fasting, obviously. So you don't need food. But this picture is a time when we no longer ever will have to work at overcoming human nature again. The work is finished over. Never again will you have to work on yourself. That again is beyond our comprehension because every day when I wake up I know I'm going to have a struggle to work against myself. And when this day and its symbolism is all complete, I will never have to work at it again. Have you had a few times in your life where the day just went swimmingly? A day when Everything just turned out right? Rare, but there have been a few like that. You probably, you, you might cast back in your memory far enough. You might find one in which it just seemed like you, you walked on roses without thorns all day long. Everything just happened the way it ought to happen. Now some days things go well and there's only so much trouble and some days you just wish you'd never gotten up. But once in a while you'll have one of those days where it just seems like from start to finish it was a wonderful day. Am I barking up the wrong tree? Have you had one of those or a few of those? Sure we have. We've had some days where we just walked on clouds all day long. This day pictures that when the work that we set to do when we were baptized is finished. Done. Over. You'll never have a downward pull. You'll never have a selfish thought. Again, never have self-pity. Never be depressed. Never tempted to lie. Never tempted to steal. Never tempted to covet. Never tempted to do anything wrong ever again. Now this day is kind of picking up a little here, isn't it? That's pretty heavy symbolism. Pretty important stuff. Never again will we have the temptation of Satan.
Nelson went through a little bit of Leviticus 16. I may go back there in a moment. But it pictures a time when Satan and the blame for our sin is harnessed on him and he's sending out in the wilderness alone. He thought he was so important. All right, enjoy your own company. See what that gets you. It won't be so pleasant. But he'll never be around again from the time, as far as we're concerned, from the Day of Atonement on. Now, he's loosed again for a short season at the end of the millennium upon some other people who have not yet attained salvation. But for you and I, once atonement comes, he's gone. He's out of our lives forevermore. Never again will he walk behind us and tempt us. I think we saw last year that this day pictures the beginning of the honeymoon of the bride or the bridegroom and his bride. Jesus Christ and the church, the 144,000. After he marries, he has to take a year off and cheer up his wife. Spend a year not working, not fighting. So there has to be in there, and this is according to Deuteronomy 24.5. So according to that principle from the Old Testament, once the marriage of the Lamb occurs on the sea of glass where we stand, as Revelation clearly shows, we rise to meet him in the air, we immediately go to the marriage and a year-long honeymoon where we stay at the throne of God for a full year getting to know our bridegroom. And it is only then that he comes back riding on a white horse, his vesture dipped in blood, and all his saints with him, as it says, to fight. He will have taken a year off from fighting and a year off, in that sense, from working to spend the time just with us. Now to me, that also makes this day come alive. It's exciting and important. Is there a bride who never dreams of her wedding and her honeymoon? I, I never have been a bride, and I thought a lot about it myself. See, that goat that is killed in Leviticus 16, again, is another representation of Christ dying for us. See, he died that our sins might be wiped out. The other one was sent out in the wilderness as an eternal example of the one who laid the sin on us in the first place. The blame goes on him for our sin. Isn't he the one who came to the Garden of Eden and began the temptation? Isn't he the one who led us in rebellion from God and has created this whole miasma of crime and sin that we have in the world today? He's the one who started it. And he is sent away and blamed for it. But killing him would not get rid of our sins. The blame is there on him. But he was sinful himself. We have to die for our sins. He made us human and told us that every man who sins will die. He has a way of getting us out of this. I'm not so sure there is a way for him to do that with Satan. Now, there's been a lot of teaching over the last few years that Satan will ultimately be killed. I'm not so sure I buy that. Because he was, as a created 
eternal being in that sense, given life, God, by his own rules, cannot revoke that life. With you and me, he made us physical so that that life could be revoked if we rebel. So he puts us through a period of time here to convince us that we should never rebel. That's why life's so tough. It's because we want to rebel. Daily, we wish to rebel against certain things God says. I want to go back. Yeah, let's go back to Leviticus 23 for a little bit here. He talked about the sons of Levi dying because they did not offer the proper uh, sacrifice in the proper way with the proper authority. We need to be sure that we approach God in the right way, at the right time, doing what he wants us to do. Uh, I, I said Leviticus 23, didn't I? I meant Leviticus 16. Or maybe I said 16 and went to 23. I'm fasting today, so whatever I say, it's okay. Don't worry about it. <clears throat> the mind works even less than usual, I guess. Anyway, let's go to Leviticus 16. Now let's pick it up in verse 4. He shall put on the holy linen coat, speaking of the high priest, and he shall have the linen breeches upon his flesh. Christ is our high priest, and he wore nothing but clean clothing. Now his clothing was sullied by the Roman soldiers, wasn't it? He was spit upon, he had dirt thrown at him, Anything that they could imagine to do to him, they did, to destroy his physical clothing. But they could not destroy the spiritual clothing he had put on. That's why we are told to put on our holy garments in, that, in Isaiah 52, verses 1 and 2. Put on the holy garments, the garments of righteousness as they are described. Because they can't take your righteousness away from you. That's why he says, fear not him who is able to kill the body, the body, but fear him who is able to kill the soul. They could do that to Christ's garments, and they finally parted them among themselves. But they couldn't destroy the spiritual clothing he had put on. They can destroy our clothes one of these days when persecution hits. They can destroy our bodies. Satan would love to destroy us eternally. But he doesn't have that power unless we allow it. If we put on those holy garments of character and righteousness, he can't touch us. Now, in a fit of anger, maybe God will allow him to kill us. Not God's anger, but Satan's anger. Now, he could have done that with Job. He let him come that close to killing Job. He said, you can do anything absolutely to him you wish to, just don't take his life. By that very statement, I know that Job came within a centimeter of dying. He came so close to death, because Satan is going to take every bit of rope God will allow him. And he'll take all the rope you and I will allow him, because he wants to destroy us spiritually. Destroying the church physically right now as it's being destroyed is not really his goal. 
He wants to pick off and spiritually, eternally destroy each and every one of us. We can't allow it to happen. Put on the holy garments, as Aaron was told to do, and as Christ did. And he shall be girded with a linen girdle, and the linen miter shall be attired, or he be attired. These are the holy garments. Therefore shall he wash his flesh in water, and so put them on. We have the Spirit of God in this word, his water, to wash ourselves in. So that when we put on the holy righteous garments, we will be clean. There will be no stink of mankind coming through. To get rid of the spiritual body odor, if you will. Now, they were to take these two goats. One, they were to cast lots. One was to have the sin pronounced or the blame of sin. The other was to die as a sacrifice. Satan doesn't die, Christ does. So that is the proper depiction there. I want to go down, though, and read beyond that. We've read that before in verses 7, 8, 9, 10 through there. Verse 15, Then shall he kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people. See, Satan is not for the people. The one that went into the wilderness wasn't for the people. Christ is the one that's for us. And bring his blood within the veil, and do with that blood as he did with the blood of the bullock, and sprinkle it upon the mercy seat and before the mercy seat. We have sinned, we need mercy, and we need the blood of Christ. Otherwise, mercy cannot be extended. And he shall make an atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel, and because of their transgressions and all their sins. And so shall he do for the tabernacle of the congregation that remains among them in the midst of their uncleanness. So any uncleanness has to be gotten rid of. Notice verse 19. He shall sprinkle of the blood upon it with his finger seven times and cleanse it, number of perfection, and hallow it from the uncleanness of the children of Israel. And when he has made an end of reconciling the holy place and the tabernacle of the congregation and the altar, he shall bring the live goat. Now notice here, there is an end to reconciling. When there is an end of reconciling, it means there will no longer be any rift, any problem, any difficulty that would ever need reconciling again. An end of reconciliation. Now, you've seen people in marriages who would split up and reconcile and split up and reconcile and split up and kill each other. No. Maybe they never solved the problem, see. But here we have a breakup that is reconciled never to need reconciliation again. Now, with Christ and Israel, it's been the kind of relationship where a marriage covenant was made and one went and lived unfaithfully, and that marriage ended. But Christ is marrying again, and we are the candidates to be that bride. And this time, we are not going to be unfaithful to him. This time, we are going to be faithful. The called, the chosen, and faithful. We will be faithful, won't we? To everything he desires of us. We will be a wife in subjection to her husband, agreeing with him, believing him, following his direction in everything. Never to rebel. 
never to do anything that would displease him in any way whatsoever. So there will never be a need again for reconciliation, right? There will be perfect unity, perfect harmony. None of us have ever experienced that on this earth. I've had people tell me, occasionally, not very often, that they have never had an argument or a fight in their life, their married life. Okay. Maybe I'll believe that. I will not believe that neither one of them ever went off feeling like that. Because there will have been differences whether they fought or not. You can suffer in silence, but you still suffer, don't you? And some of us still suffer in silence, and sometimes we fight. But hopefully we always reconcile. Can you imagine a time where there would ever, never ever again need to be a reconciliation? Never a rift. Never a bad feeling. Never a hurt. Never hurt feelings. We men, we hurt our wives' feelings all the time. We just do it. They're, they have tender feelings for the most part, and we hurt them. I can't imagine me growing to the point I would never hurt my wife's feelings again. I try not to, but I do it anyhow. I, I would love to see a final reconciliation apart from the grave, where you could actually live and live together without ever having another problem, argument, rift, bad feeling, or hurt. That's the marriage we're headed for. And all of ours fall short of it today, even as we all fall short of the righteousness of God. Let's look at this word atonement for a moment. The Hebrew word is 3722 in the... ...cover our sins. When we are atoned for... That's what it means, to cover, or to expiate is another definition or synonym. To expiate, cut it off, get rid of it, no longer there. To placate, sometimes our feelings need placated, don't they, because we are upset or uptight or excited in a, in a negative way. So we have to do something that placates that, that resolves that, that solves it, that gets rid of the hurt and the hard feelings, the making up process, in other words. Or cancel. I forgive. Now, he says when he forgives, he removes it as far as the east is from the west so they can never be remembered again. Now, we as humans don't always forgive in that fashion. We need to learn to. But we tend to, I'll forgive you, but I'll never forget it is more a human approach. That's not a godly approach. That's human. Never mistake that. Now the use in the New Testament, apart from just the definition, is to appease, to make an atonement, to cleanse. When something's dirty, a relationship's dirty, you scrub it, don't you? And you get it all clean and white and bright again. To disannul, to forgive, 
to be merciful, to pacify, to pardon, to purge away, to put off, to make reconciliation. That's that's how the word is used in the New Testament, and that's what it means. Now, does this begin to sound like a marriage or not? (laughs) Doesn't it? The day itself, and the Jews use this term, Yom Kippur, or Kippur, means expiation. Become at one. Now, we've used the English, and we've broken the word down into three syllables, at one meant to say we become at one with God. Now, the word breaks down that way. It doesn't necessarily have that definition in the English, but when you consider all these words we've used to define it, isn't that what it's all about? When you are estranged from one another in a relationship, particularly marriage, isn't that what you're trying to do is resolve the problem get the, the hurt, the frustration, the anger, the out of the way. Yeah, so you can become at one again, so you can feel close again, so you can smile and look at each other with pleasure and excitement again, instead of the frustration that you're at the moment feeling. So all of these words, to, to put away, to cancel, to appease, to make better, to disannul, to get rid of the problem is what allows you to become at one, as we are to become at one with Christ. Let's go to Ephesians 5 for a moment and see that this is the very analogy that God uses to describe himself and the church. I heard of one person who quit listening to my tapes after Last Atonement. That was the last one they listened to because I made it clear, I think, at least my belief was, that atonement pictures the marriage of the Lamb and the beginning of the honeymoon of the Christ and the church. Isn't that the next event that follows rising in the air to meet him at trumpets? Doesn't the marriage have to take place before working with children can begin in the millennium? It's the only other big event that has to occur. How could it not fit in here? How could it not? We've got a holy day here that just means becoming at one with God, and that's all it means to us. And there's no big event in the plan of salvation? Give me a break. Ephesians 5, verse 21. Submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God, husband and wife submit to each other, their needs, their feelings, their hurts, their desires, Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as to the eternal. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. So he likens a husband in a physical marriage to the same position Christ has with the church. The church is to become his bride. We immediately run into problems in this life, because husbands are not perfect by far, and wives are not perfect in submission by far, and our whole society tells us that it's the other way. But it's not. Do we trust God, or do we not trust God? Are we convinced his way is best, or are we still rebelling in mind and emotion? Therefore, as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. 
Now, to a lady, that seems, in a way, unfair, because to her, it sounds like her husband can treat her any way he wants to, and she has to submit anyhow. No, this isn't the battered broad syndrome here. It doesn't allow for that at all, whether it be physical or emotional. He goes on to say, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. Now, doesn't that make the husband's responsibility even greater than the wife's? She has to submit to her husband in everything as, to, as she would to God, but he has to be just like God. He doesn't get off the hook here at all, does he? You're supposed to love your wife as much as Christ loved the church, and he was broken and beaten and died for it. Now, how much do we lack, fellers? We have a long way to go. That he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. We, as husbands, have to read this book. We have to get in line with it. We have to bring all our thoughts and activities into line with this word in order to appear before our wives as Christ would appear. We need to make her job of being in subjection to us a whole lot easier than we have. That he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. That is his job to do right now. He wants each and every one of us to not have spot or wrinkle or blemish, but to be absolutely holy. How can there be total reconciliation, total atonement, total oneness and closeness as long as there is any infringement on the feelings of the other? There cannot be. As long as we are human, we are still going to hurt and frustrate and disappoint one another because we're still being pulled down and we sometimes give in to it. Now, sometimes we're pulling the other way and sometimes we win, don't we? So, I, you know, there's two sides to this. I don't mean to be putting us down. We are moving upward, swimming against the current and doing better day by day, week by week, and month by month because we're immersing ourselves in the Word of God and beginning to follow it better, aren't we? So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loves his wife loves himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, even as the Lord the church. Now some might say, well, I hate myself. Well, maybe you have that emotion of hating yourself, but do you take out a knife and just kind of stab it through your hand in the morning to help you wake up? No, you, you kind of want your hands warm, don't you? You can be standing there by the fire telling someone, I hate myself, at the same time you're saying that you're warming your hands. 
You don't really hate yourself. You hate things about you. You hate a lot of the things you do and the attitudes you have. But you like to stay warm. You don't like to be cold. You don't like to be hungry. You don't like to be thirsty. Maybe I could point out an example here today. We're hungry and thirsty. Well, I'm not at the moment. I'm busy. You're the one suffering. I'm not. When I'm in the middle of a sermon, I don't feel it. Okay, except for the dry mouth, maybe. We're to treat our wife with the same tenderness and kindness that we treat our fingers when we're near a stove and don't want to burn ourselves. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. We become one. That's what marriage is all about. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. And he says that through the physical relationship in marriage, a man and wife become one flesh. And yet someone says, well, the Song of Songs can't be talking about marriage. It's only a sex manual. It can't be talking about Christ and the church. Well, isn't that what Ephesians 5 is talking about in becoming one flesh? Are we afraid of it? Or do we still subliminally somewhere in the back of our mind think that the physical relationship between a husband and wife is somehow wrong or dirty? Do we still buy into that? Or do we buy into the idea that God made that? God all, made all the parts. God made all the emotions and the feelings that go with it. And he looked at everything he made and he said, It is good. It is only bad when misused and abused and hurtful. But God made it good because it pictures the relationship between Christ and the church. No two people on this earth can get any closer than a husband and wife in a proper, loving, marriage, sexual relationship. Can't be done because that draws you together emotionally, as well as physically. And I said, done right, under the right circumstances, with the right attitudes. Because there are a lot of people who don't want much to do with it. They just, they had bad experiences or bad thoughts or bad teachings or whatever. So to them, that couldn't picture anything godly. But if, if you remove all those things that spoiled it and ruined it, then it is the most wonderful thing God has made to draw a husband and a wife together to become one in body and mind and spirit. That's what it was designed for. And any abuse of that leads to problems and frustrations and difficulties. So the Day of Atonement is the final reconciliation, as we're told in Leviticus 16. No more! Will husband and wife ever hurt one another in any form or fashion ever again? I want to go back there again and finish the thought. Leviticus 16. Verse 21, And Aaron shall lay both his hands upon the head of the live goat and confess over him all the iniquities of the children of Israel. Now here's where people get confused because they think, well, didn't Christ take on our sins? 
Yes, he took on the sin, he took on the penalty, but he didn't take on the blame. He did not lead us to sin. He tempts no man, as James tells us. And the goat shall bear upon him all their iniquities unto a land not inhabited, and he shall let go the goat in the wilderness. Christ is never going to go off alone again. Once he comes, once he takes his bride, it says she shall ever be with him. Wherever he goes, she will go. They will never be parted again. And Aaron shall come into the tabernacle of the congregation and shall put off the linen garments which he put on when he went into the holy place and shall leave them there and he shall wash his flesh with water in the holy place and put on his other garments and come out. I want to get down to this, verse uh, 29. And this shall be a statute forever to you, that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict your souls, that is, by fasting, as other scriptures prove, and do no work at all, whether it be one of your own country or a stranger that sojourns among you. I've already made that point, but I wanted to read it here. I got a little ahead of myself. This day pictures a time when the struggle is over. No work at all, not even the preparation of food. For on that day shall the priest make an atonement for you to cleanse you, that you may be clean from all your sins before the eternal. It shall be a Sabbath of rest to you, and you shall afflict your souls by a statute forever. And the priest whom he shall anoint, and whom he shall consecrate to minister in the priest's office in his father's stead, shall make the atonement, and shall put on the linen clothes, even the holy garments, and make atonement for the holy sanctuary, an atonement for the tabernacle of the congregation, and for the altar, and an atonement for the priests, and for all the people of the congregation. And this shall be an everlasting statute to you, to make an atonement for the children of Israel for all their sins once a year. And he did as the Lord commanded Moses. Now, we have thought of the Passover in those terms, haven't we? But the Passover is only the beginning of the relationship. It's the beginning of the reconciling of human being to become God. Someone perfect had to die so that the imperfect might not have to pay for their own sin. Then comes the process of coming out of sin then comes the Holy Spirit to help us come out of sin, to join us together in a body that we might help one another come out of sin and develop a closeness in the body. Then comes Feast of Trumpets when we're changed. In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, and no longer will have another downward pull, and immediately upon the heels of that comes a final reconciliation. Any sins that were left over when you rose off the ground to meet him in the air are wiped away once and for all, and you will never, ever sin again. It'll never happen. Once God has judged that you have been purified as gold and silver, and he makes up his crown and puts those jewels in it, they're there forevermore. And that marriage will never have a bad day. 
Never will we hurt his feelings. Never will he hurt ours. Never will we ever have a time when the children might divide us and play one against the other. We will be together as one. At one meant. Now, that is the end of the symbolism as far as your salvation and mine is concerned. We will be eternal, we will be spirit, we will have a, an up-pulling nature, and we'll never sin again. Our salvation at that point is complete. But what does a marriage do? And what does a perfect marriage do? A marriage normally is intended to produce children. Beloved, obedient, respectful, happy, well-adjusted children. There comes a lot of the reason we fast this day. Now, part of it is bound up in the fact that our bridegroom is not here with us. Christ said, I, my disciples don't fast now, I'm with them. But when I'm gone, they will fast. Why? Because they're not as close anymore. They're not one the same way they were anymore. Then they were together day and night. All the time. His disciples basically were with him unless he went off to pray somewhere. Now he's gone off into the heavens and we're left here without our bridegroom. So this day pictures a time when we'll come together and never more ever be apart. And until he does come and we follow him everywhere he goes, we need to fast so that we can remove the barriers that come up. Have you ever noticed that when you're separated from your husband or wife by many, many miles or many, many days or weeks or months, well, let's use war as a good example of it. War is hell across the seas, but war is hell on the home front, too, as one song went years ago. The husband has trouble handling it when he's overseas, and the wife has trouble handling it at home. Why? They're apart. They don't talk to each other. They don't tell each other, I love you. They don't tell each other, I sure am glad you're with me tonight. They're wondering what the other one is thinking. They're doing things they might not do in the presence of their mate. And rifts and troubles begin. And those begin to show up in phone calls and letters and so on. And very often, war presents or causes divorces and all kinds of problems. And those can begin only with a day or two or three or four or five apart for the husband and wife. Because they can't resolve things that they are feeling because the other one is not there to resolve it with. So we have a day once a year to symbolize the fact that we're not with him every day and we have trouble communicating and resolving our differences. He said, I'm not going to speak to you much anymore. You're going to have to get it out of my word and you've got to pray to me and talk to me, but I'm not going to talk to you much. Now what if you husbands told your wife, uh, you can talk to me all you want, but I'm not going to talk to you very much anymore. That would make you happy, wouldn't it, girls? Your husband just become aloof and he stayed away. Well, for 
purposes of salvation, that has had to be. Christ is not here with us every day. We have to go through a trial and proving ground so that through many afflictions and tribulations, troubles and persecutions, we might have the holy, righteous character we need to be in the kingdom of God. So he needs to be apart from us, and we need to draw near to him because he has no problem being near to us. He will never say or do anything that would hurt you. We're the ones with the problem. So we have to be somewhat isolated from him for a time to prove ourselves. Now, he was with them in the desert, wasn't he? In Sinai? Had the cloud of fire? I mean, the pillar of fire and the cloud of above? And he was with them, and he spoke from Sinai? And they rebelled anyway. So now he said, I'm going to withdraw. Now you straighten up, and I'll come back. Those are the terms of the reconciliation. When we straighten up, he'll come back. See why it's so important to grow and change and overcome and be like him and think like he thinks? So that we would never rebel again. So that's part of why we fast. Now there's another reason, and I'm going to, we refer to this almost every year, but I'm going to approach it from a little different angle right now in Isaiah 58. And I'm not going to go through the whole chapter as we've done before. But I brought you to the point where we were discussing that now our marriage is perfect. We've had a beautiful honeymoon for a year, but the seven last plagues are going on down on the earth and people are dying, and unless he intervened and cut things short, no one would be left alive. So the honeymoon is truncated at the end of one year and maybe even cut short, who knows, in righteousness. So that we might come back to this earth and mind the children. Husband and wife have to get it together first. We can never let the children separate us. We can never let them play one against the other. We have to get together with Christ as one heartbeat. That's the whole heart. One heartbeat together. Then we are prepared to help the children. Now, why do we fast? Is it so we can get what we want? That's what he tells us not to do in the beginning of this chapter. He tells us why he has this fast, beginning in verse 6. Is not this the fast that I have chosen, to loose the bands of wickedness? Now, until that wickedness is released, how can we be fully reconciled? If a husband or a wife looks at the other and says, yeah, I know, that's your words, but what are you really thinking? you still got a marriage problem. It's only when both have absolute trust in the other that you don't have marriage troubles. So fasting is to loose the bands of wickedness. It is to undo the heavy burdens. Don't we have burdens in our marriages today? Don't we have things about the other that bother us, that frustrate us? We're to fast on the day that pictures the marriage of the lamb and the beginning of the honeymoon for a reason. 
because this is to be an ultimate final reconciliation. We have to loose ourselves from sin and distrust and faithlessness. To let the oppressed go free, that you break every yoke. Wouldn't you like every little bit of communication problem between you and your mate to be completely solved so that it was never a problem again? So that you did not roll your eyes at each other? This is not only a child problem. It's a child problem because it's a parent problem. Now, a lot of times maybe the kids feel bad and think, the church is saying the kids are bad. No, 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 no. You got it all wrong. It's not bad kids, it's bad parenting that creates problems with children. It's human nature too. But the fact that parents can't get it together the right way is one of the major reasons they have problems with their children. That's why this day has to be a day of fasting so that it has a symbolism of us breaking every yoke, every burden, getting rid of every sin, so that we can live together in perfect harmony with Jesus Christ. I think the case gets stronger for the Day of Atonement, me being a type of the marriage of the Lamb. Now, once you loosen those, once total reconciliation is made so that you are at one, the two become one, once that is done, we have a job to do. We move on to the Feast of Tabernacles. Verse 7, Is it not to deal your bread to the hungry, and that you bring the poor that are cast out to your house, when you see the naked that you cover him, and that you hide not yourself from your own flesh? Now ultimately, that is the final fulfillment of this, that we, with Jesus Christ, with a perfect marriage, set out to make a beautiful, wonderful world for our children, those human beings who are still left alive on the earth. That's what the Feast of Tabernacles is about. We have to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, Romans 12:1, so that we can be there to help this sin-sick world get straightened out. It can't be done now. The rift between the bride and the bridegroom has to be solved. Then we can come down and resolve the problems of the children. We can make their lives happy and abundant and full. That's what the sacrifice is all about. We're going to have something so wonderful, we will be able to share it with others. Then shall your light break forth as the morning, and your health shall spring forth speedily. We'll walk on clouds all day long every day. Never a problem again. Your health shall spring forth speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the eternal shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call, and the eternal shall answer. You shall cry, and he shall say, Here I am. If you take away from the midst of you the yoke, the putting forth of the finger, and speaking vanity. All those things that cause a rift between people will no longer be done. And therefore, we'll stay in complete oneness forevermore. He goes on to talk about how he'll satisfy the drought and will be healers of the breach. What breach? Between God and man. And now, I submit, that we have another situation we must address. 
Now we're talking about the plan of salvation and the ultimate symbolism of the bride and groom coming together in a perfect marriage helping the children. We have a church today where there are problems between Christ and his bride-to-be. And he has become so angry with the church that he has scattered it and separated it and spewed it out of his mouth because of inattention and wandering eyes, wandering ears, wandering feelings that are going somewhere other than righteousness. <coughs> that is unacceptable in a bride of Christ. So he has spewed us out of his mouth scattered us to the winds. Now, you and I understand some things that most people are missing. God has opened our eyes to see these things. Very few understand why the church has been scattered. I read an, a, a, a letter to the editor in the journal just last night, in fact, where someone said, well, it's all the ministry's fault, according to Ezekiel 34. Well, I'll say that the ministry is culpable, and probably it is 80%, pick a number, the fault of the ministry for not leading people in the right way. But the people are also responsible. And he says, the soul that sins, it shall die, not the minister for him. So you have responsibility as well. It's my responsibility to cry aloud and spare not and save my own hide by telling you to save yours. If I don't do that, I will die for your sins and mine. So if I yell at you, I have a reason. I'm trying to protect this boy. <laughs> no, not entirely. I do want to be saved, but I want you there too. And I can't be saved unless you are. Because God has laid it on me to talk to you about it and to make sure you understand and if I don't do that, then I will lose my salvation. Now, I do it willingly, as Paul said. But at the same time, it's a necessity. We are called to a life of sacrifice. We are called to do as Christ did for us. We are not to leave him naked and hungry and miserable. We're to help him. And if we see anyone who has need, we're to help them, and he will account it as having done it to him, Matthew 25. Okay? I'm leading to a point here. We sacrifice eating today so that we might give our bread to the hungry. That's what it says here in Isaiah 58. There is a responsibility we have to the rest of the church, the rest of the bride. We are members together. There is no way we can say we are exclusive, we're the only Philadelphians, the rest of you are Laodiceans. We have a responsibility, you and me. Now I think that we understand these things that I've talked about today better than most. Maybe not better than everyone, but better than most. Most are still slumbering and sleeping and content in their pew, wherever it is. We are supposed to be growing and overcoming, and we have been given the knowledge. This is dangerous knowledge. I came across a scripture the other day I want to read you back in Proverbs, which hit me really hard when I read it. Proverbs 24. 
beginning in verse 10. Proverbs 24, verse 10. If you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. Is this the day of adversity? Adversity certainly has come on the church, and adversity is about to come on Israel and the world. We, as Christians, are already in the days of adversity. If we faint, our strength is small. A lot of people are fainting. A lot of people are giving up. A lot of people are going back into the world. A lot of people are claiming they're better than others. We are not. Don't get me wrong when I say I think we understand some things better than most. Understanding them does not necessarily equate to righteousness. It doesn't make us better than anyone because we might understand something better. It only makes us more culpable. It only makes us more responsible. It only makes us more accountable to understand more. If you forbear to deliver them that are drawn to death, and those that are ready to be slain. We look around us today, and we see a lot who are dying spiritually, who are about to be slain. They're dying for lack of spiritual food. They're dying for lack of encouragement. They're dying for lack of chastening. They're dying for lack of studying the Word of God daily. They're dying for lack of leadership in the ministry. The bottom line is they are dying. If you forbear to deliver them that are drawn to death and those that are ready to be slain, if you say, behold, we knew it not. We didn't know what their problem was. We didn't know what was going on. They didn't come to us and ask for help. If we come up with a bunch of lame excuses, in other words, does not he that ponders the heart consider it? And he that keeps your soul, does he not know it? And shall not he render to every man according to his works? If we know that there are people who are spiritually starving and dying today, do we or do we not have a responsibility beyond our own salvation? to be sure that they are warmed and filled in some form or fashion. In other words, if we understand what's happening in the church today, is there not some onus upon us to do something about it? Do we not have a responsibility? I think we need to deeply consider that in the light of what we have examined in Isaiah 58, and in the light of what this day means, in the light of it being a total and final reconciliation in the plan of salvation for us, and then that there are children out there in the millennium who will be dying physically, starving to death, and need help. But before that ever comes, there are those today, right now, who are dying spiritually, and that is a far greater death, who may be missing out on their chance to be a part of the Bride of Christ. Is there a responsibility laid on us here in Proverbs 24 not to forbear, but to be sure they have the knowledge they need? I do not feel it is time to go to the world, but it is time to go to the church. 
And I think we need to take whatever steps, whatever ways, whatever doors God might open to do that. I do not know precisely in what ways to do. Be it Internet, we're working on getting that set up again, and I've delayed the process now a few days because of some decisions that I'm making and thinking about and I would like your prayers about. At the same time, we must move forward. How do you reach the church? Hard to do by television or radio, even by the written publication that they might not want. I've loathed to get in the journal because it's such a hodgepodge and mishmash of false doctrine and true doctrine and gossip and problems of all kinds and everybody advertising how they're the most wonderful church, you ought to come to our feast and you better listen to us because we're the only ones with the truth. And in a way, I don't want to get involved in that. How can we reach God's people who are starving and dying of famine and pestilence? How can we perform our duty now to show our readiness to help the rest of the world in the millennium then? I think this is something we ought to pray about today. We are fasting so that we might remove all barriers between us and God and break the bands of wickedness in ourselves and our own yokes of bondage. And at the same time, a proper mother will think of the other children. Our proper child will think of the siblings as well. We don't get off the hook either way in the family analogy. What more could we be doing to reach out to others rather than just hearing and feeding ourselves? That is a question. I think it's a question we need to pray about and ask God if there be some way we can reach out and help to show us how to do it, when to do it, how to go about it, where it's needed, and help in any way we can. That is what a proper mother to the children would be. Now, if we're candidates to be the bride, then other parts of the bride, whether it be the arm, the foot, the leg, the head, the brain, the eye, or whatever, if they're hurting, we need to hurt with them. And if they're to be children, We're to be helping rear them properly. I don't think we're doing enough. I think we've been learning. Maybe we've come to a point where we have begun to mesh as a family and as a team, as a small group that might reach out to others. But that's what Isaiah 58 tells me fasting is all about. Break our own bonds of wickedness and give our bread to others. Let's find a way. Let's ask for a way. Let's implore God before this day is over that he begin to show us, whether immediately or over time or however, in his time and way. You know, you don't always get everything you want from your husband when you want it. I know and I believe that he knows what is best for you and me. And I will pray his will be done. And I know he has... In his best interests, everyone else, he is called at this end. Many are called, few are chosen. I want us to be chosen, and I want us to help others be chosen. So Proverbs 24, 10 through 12 says something very loud to you and me. 
Let's pray about it. Let's think about it. Let's talk about it. How can we give our bread to others? How can we give a cup of water to someone who is athirst? We're in a time of spiritual famine and distress in the land, and it's going to get worse. And yet God has abundantly opened the doors of understanding to us, not because we're great, but because we're weak in base, and thereby he might glorify himself as he uses us. It's not our job to be anything but what we are and to yield to him so that we can become something we are not. We have been an unfaithful candidate bride. We need to become a faithful one in whom is no shadow of turning or variableness as there is none in him, as James 1.17 says. We must go about our father's business. And his father is to reconcile his bride and get her ready for the marriage of the lamb that the rest of the children in the world might be saved. How can we better do our part?